You're listening to Rebel 5, an interactive interview podcast with alumni, past and current parents, and friends of Roncalli High School. I'm your host, Gary Armbruster, Director of Alumni and Corporate Relations at Roncalli. And each week, I will ask our guests five questions regarding how their lives have evolved and how key connections of experience, opportunity, and alumni networking have propelled them to where they are today. We'll talk challenges, how to overcome challenges, and what they've learned along the way. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Gary Armbruster, and today we have another great guest, one of the unsung heroes of Roncalli High School for the last 28 years. He is a graduate of 1985 from Roncalli, and he is our Vice President of Finance and Facilities. Today we welcome Dave Gervasio. Dave, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Gary. It's great to be here. Tell us about your first job. My actual first job, believe it or not. Uh, when I went back and looked on it, uh, I was the bat boy for the Indianapolis Indians. Oh, cool. Uh, that was uh, back, I think, in I think it was 1980, 1981. Absolutely loved that job uh, for about the first five games. Uh, <laughs> that was the original victory field. <laughs> it was, yeah. yes, uh, out at Bush Stadium. And uh, after about game six, it got a little boring, and I realized, oh, there's 72 home games uh, and two years' worth of that. But uh, I did uh, survive it. Uh, it was a great experience. Any Indians of renown that uh, you got to see on a daily basis? You know, um, I, I would say this. The, when, you, when you were the uh, bat boy for the visiting team, Back at that time, the Indians were the farm club for the Cincinnati Reds. Yes, of and uh, so you were talking late 70s, early 80s. Uh, you were catching the tail end of the big red machine. Yeah. And so I really, uh, you know, when I was uh, there as, as the bat boy for that that game, uh, there were, you know, it was uh, Johnny Bench, Ken Griffey, Senior, yeah, not junior. <laughs> uh, George Foster, uh, Pete Rose. Pete uh, had already moved on. He was playing for the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Phillies, yeah. yeah, at that time. But uh, those guys, just meeting those guys was incredible. Yeah. Any um, lessons to be learned from that particular job as a bat boy for the Indians? You know, it. Uh, in looking back on it, uh, and really sticking with the 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 big red machine and those guys. Uh, I was in awe of them, mm-hmm. you know, obviously as a grade school kid and, and watching them win a couple of World Series. But what really, I, one of my big takeaways was uh, watching those guys, the Johnny Benches and the King Griffey Seniors, and how they carried themselves, how they handled success. And, uh, you know, I was just a kid at the time, but, uh, you know, I'll never forget uh, walking out to the locker room and, and a Ken Griffey senior just comes up, puts his arm around me as we're walking out there and we're just talking like old friends. Uh, I'm, you know, stuttering over every word and he is, you know, he's just laughing and Johnny Bench was the same way. Those yeah. guys, uh, they, they obviously knew they were, um, very successful and knew they were very popular, but they did not walk or act that right. way. And that was just neat to see uh, and something I'll, I'll never forget about those guys. You uh, graduate in 1985 from Roncalli High School, and then you go down to IU and graduate uh, four years later. How did you get to Roncalli? You've been here for 28 years. That puts you in your early 20s. Was Roncalli your first job out of college? Uh, it really was. Uh, when I, I had a uh, business degree from IU, at the time I knew um, business 
wasn't exactly what I wanted. I, I really wanted to teach and coach. Um, and this gave me an opportunity. It was, a I think, a two-year program through the University of Indianapolis. Could go back and get a, uh, they called it a teaching certificate at the time, where I could teach business, I could teach computers. So I did that, and then uh, graduated in December, and I was uh, just a college kid looking for a job. And so uh, at that time, uh, I, I knew Joe Hollowell really mm-hmm. well. We had uh, done a lot of uh, mountaineering, rock climbing uh, through the summer field studies program together. And uh, he had called me up. He said they might have an opening in the business office and, uh, you know, did I want a, a part-time job? And so I, I to me, that's a paycheck. Oh, my gosh, yes, <laughs> I'm in. Um <laughs> And so, I'm sure your mom and dad were happy. That oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Shocked and happy. <laughs> oh, my gosh, he's got a job. Uh, and so uh, I started um, in January, so midway through the school year. At the time, when I talked with Joe, I was really just going to come in for some part-time help. Um, I think they were looking to try and uh, incorporate uh, more technology in their business office. And um, a business office legend named Tozy Huck Absolutely. was here at the time, and uh, uh, she is the greatest lady. Uh, and so I'm starting day one, and I come in. Tozy starts referring to me as the business manager. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm taken aback, you know, by that. Uh, but uh, I, I didn't really know what to make of it. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, I go home and come back the next day and the exact thing she starts, keeps referring to me as the business manager. And so I went into Joe's office and I said, is there something I don't know about? (laughs) (laughs) What? And, uh, and he says, well, give me a second. Let me, let me talk with Tozy. And, uh, so he goes in and he talks with Tozy, um, and, uh, comes back in a little bit later and says, how would you like to be the business manager? (laughs) And once again, oh, it's a job, <laughs> a paycheck. Yeah. You know, that's that's really where it started. And Tozy, if you, you know, she is uh, passed, but she, she's, uh, she has the, almost the exact similar kind of story where uh, Bernie Dever was a principal at the time when she started. And she said, yeah, Bernie just asked me to come in and pay a couple bills. And, you know, a couple decades later, she's still there. <laughs> uh, so I guess that's a, a way a lot of people get started in Catholic schools. 28 years ago, in your wildest dreams, did you think you'd still be here in 28 years later? Uh, not a chance. <laughs> so that was never the goal, that you were going to come to Ron Colley and spend your a good portion of your career here, and your kids would go here, and you'd live a block away. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that never occurred to me at all. You know, at, at the time, in my mind, I was heading out west. You know, I was going to continue to uh, climb mountains and live the outdoor life. Mm-hmm. Uh, as always, um, you know, tell God your plans and, and he'll get a good laugh, good laugh out of them. Yeah. And, <laughs> and here we are. So you are uh, vice president of finance and facilities. <laughs> Correct. And so I'm laughing because I've heard your job description as the vice president of institutional reality. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming to, uh, Coming to like that title now as I continue to hear it year after year, but yes. What's it like to be the wet blanket <laughs> that you have to be in that position? Because the buck kind of stops at your desk in some ways. And so tell us a little bit about 
some history there and, and where we were when you started. You know, that scenario when I started, uh, was, this was a time and period of Roncalli where we had gone from an enrollment of over 800 students and uh, in the course of about uh, maybe three or four years had dropped down to about 600. I think I started with 625 student enrollment. And uh, you know, there, was, there was really, obviously, when you are partially paying the light bills, there is talk of your school closing. You know, it was guerrilla warfare. You, you were trying to make payroll. You were trying to pay the utility bills. All at the same time, you were trying to change the culture of the school. Do we still have bingo at the time? It was just coming to a close because okay. I think it actually had closed right almost as I was starting. I think we were losing maybe a, a couple thousand dollars every time we had bingo. Had bingo. Yeah. And uh, Joe made the funny comment. It was one of the best fundraisers, which is stopping bingo. (laughs) (laughs) What's wrong with this picture? (laughs) Exactly. We could stop the bleeding. So it did take time. When you look back on it, it was, you know, a snap of the fingers. But Mm -hmm. our enrollment began to increase. Um, And at the time, um, you know, our our tuition was actually ridiculously low uh, versus the the cost to educate a student in, in a good fashion. Uh, so, you know, we've spent, um, you know, the next uh, 10, 15 years going through a lot of transition, went through a number of good strategic plan cycles. We went through a leadership adjustment to where we went to the president-principal model. Uh, we had a lot of role clarification. You know, there was a lot of big-picture pieces that came together along with a lot of hard work. Um, and, uh, you know, then when Joe moved to the president's position, Chuck takes over as principal, and, uh, you know, we then start to see a little bit of movement um, in our finances. Uh, and so, uh, you know, things start moving in the right direction. You know, you flash forward now to an enrollment, knocking on the door of 1,200 students, so you've almost doubled in size right. from when I started. You uh, are, uh, you know, closing in about 45, 50 acres worth of land. <laughs> Facilities have just come so far, it's just uh, completely turned around. At one point in time, when we went to the president-principal model, we had a strategic plan. Talk about that a little bit, because I'm sure you were involved in that a lot. I was. the And, you know, I, I tell you, from a, uh, from a strategic aspect, when you are when I'm talking as guerrilla warfare, you, you're just trying to survive the day. Right. Uh, you're just trying to keep the doors open. So there wasn't really any significant long-term planning. There wasn't uh, as much of a long-term vision, especially as it surrounded facilities, as yeah. it surrounded curriculum, as building, it surrounded building maintenance. Wasn't <laughs> exactly that was you didn't have that. You didn't. You did not. You know the the history was as the uh, religious staff, um, brothers and sisters who used to teach many of the courses here as they moved out and there there was more lay folks coming in to right. teach the classes uh well that brought a a financial uh impact to the school because uh you know the the brothers and sisters were uh in, in an extraordinary uh gift of their their time and their talent uh now as you're bringing in the lay staff you're going to have to pay them well what happened at that point in time this is probably you know, starting in the 70s and 80s, well, what the deferred maintenance just mm-hmm. went out oh, the right, window. Right. And so your facilities, and, you, and this happened across the nation, where, you know, Catholic school facilities just dropped. 
and uh, didn't handle that transi- transition well. So, you know, what the strategic planning allowed you to do was now let's let's get out of this guerrilla warfare. We've got our head above water. Now Barely. let's yeah exactly yeah right. enough that you can look uh, out in the future five ten years and say and even longer and say you know this is this is the vision this is the plan uh, that we are looking towards and and if you look now. Uh, if you go back to that first strategic plan and you see, you know, the facility layout, uh, it's pretty darn close. Well, that's that's what I was going to bring up. Um, I know Joe talks about, you know, it's infinitely easier to draw a gym on a piece of paper than, <laughs> than it is to go raise the money and build it. Was there um, something that happened that was the motivation to to get things started? Because I know the first capital campaign that we had in 97 – you know, we didn't know whether we could raise ten thousand dollars or ten million dollars. Mm. Um, I think we raised what three and a half million, three and a half million on that first campaign. And, and sure. so, you know, we were off and running. Yeah, I, I really do think um, when you go into a campaign uh, and that first campaign, especially if, if you're coming from, um, you know, at the time we had never been through one, right? Um, and so you don't know. You're you're very reluctant as to. You know, what can we do here? You can have, and we, we did hire some outside consultants who came in, and and uh, and everything is new. Um, but it's probably, I think, the biggest lesson that we learned from that campaign, and one of the biggest motivation pieces was that uh, we did exceed goal, and we did, um, you know, raise that kind of money uh, above and beyond the goal. And but there wasn't any one big donor that came in and carried the weight it was and it was you were involving the entire community and uh, and the community responded and uh and not only did that did they respond with that uh we were still in some pretty significant tuition increases at the time because as i mentioned our tuition was was really starving us to death um and so you're talking about increased tuition rates you're talking about above and beyond that asking people for additional funding to to support the mission of your school and people responded and uh you know once that does happen um the monster feeds itself and uh you're you see more of the plan and you see more of, of what you th- think you can accomplish uh and I, and and here's where the the vice president of institutional reality comes in <laughs> yeah because yeah. now everybody boy let's do it uh <laughs> let's go get it all and in and i would i'll really simplify you know school finance in that it's not much different than your home um, there's somebody probably in your home that, uh, there's probably, you know, same thing with my wife and I, uh, one of us has grandiose plans and the other one says, well, here's the checkbook balance. Uh, uh and th- this is where we're at. Uh, and over the years I've learned the, the, uh, the verbiage of, uh, Catholic schools is that, uh, you know, when, when somebody comes in and says, you know, I think we need to take a leap of faith. Uh, <laughs> my translation is. Is, uh, you know, they're wanting to make a bad financial decision is exactly what they're wanting to do. So I'm the guy who has to, has to come in and say, you know, uh, um, God sent me here to tell you that's a bad idea. Right. And so I, I that was basically my job was to come in and say, you know, this is, this is what our resources are saying we can do at the time. And, and, uh, let's try and stay within that. And, uh, uh, so in, when you look back at over the 28, years that I've been here, uh, we've not had one, uh, 
budget that is not ended in a surplus. Yeah. And um, and so when we when we do that, we're making I think we're making good financial decisions. We keep putting ourselves in a good uh, financial place. Uh, we keep getting better. There's a long way to go. I think there's a ton of challenges they're going to face. Catholic schools. Um, and, and in one sense, I feel like I'm back in 19. 19- 91 when I started mm-hmm. and uh and it's guerrilla warfare again but but that's that comes with the business so. right um in the last 28 years uh Ron College raised well north of 30 million dollars for capital improvements um we've built the wing the 97 wing the auditorium we've added on to the concession stand we've added on to the blockhouse we've added the the uh, bubble gym we're building a new gym do you have a favorite project that we've done or does it all kind of just roll into one uh i would say the favorite project for me was the first time we did our uh synthetic turf on our stadium field uh and it was it was a project that um you know i, I remember I uh, was at a conference in Georgia, and a friend of mine was a business manager, and he said, hey, you know, we just we just got this new turf. You want to come out and take a look at it? And, uh, and I, I, I was probably eight steps out on the turf, and I said, this is what we need. <laughs> I have seen us butcher this field. You know, it, it would— By October. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you get one rain of a varsity uh, football game, and it's gone. Uh, and so— um, I, I went back, and this this was before turfs were popular. Center Grove, I think, was the only school maybe in the area that had had it before us. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. And uh, so there was a lot of uh, education, uh, and and I rem- vividly remember sitting in the facilities committee meeting and bringing this up and saying, you know, this this is the route we need to go, and. Uh, you know, it, it looked like there were eight other vice presidents for, you know, institutional reality <laughs> yeah. looking back at me and saying, what are you thinking? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, here we are. We just uh, – and that project is one that we actually – one of the first projects that we did, um, most schools will hire a construction management firm and an architect a lot of times to do those things. Well, uh, we did not. Right. Uh, it was Dave Gervasio who was the guy that was really um, piecing that together and uh, – uh, it was uh, it was an adventure to say the least because we were also completing the um, auditorium project at the same time, um, and uh, I just remember uh, we had to push back the season because they didn't get the turf down in time. Uh, and but I remember it was about a week, uh, not the season. They just had they couldn't play the the scrimmage there. Okay, yeah. and so uh, and you're facing the deadline of trying to get that first game right in, and you know the turf did just got finished in time, and I remember it was about like ten o'clock at night that they're putting the final touches on it, and I just remember going out to the the fifty yard line and doing a snow angel right there at, <laughs> at midfield just because the doggone thing had been finished, and uh, we were able to play on it, and uh, you know it lasted beyond its life expectancy. Oh yeah. Uh, so and and you know we we have been using it. Uh, um, nonstop. So um, that project sticks out in my mind. I've got one more question for you, and then we'll go to break. Mm-hmm. Um, how important was it to get those 18 acres or 20, whatever it is, between Ron College property and the interstate? And tell us a little bit about that. Cause that was huge. Um, because the, uh, you know, when you look at a, a lot of the other schools, they are, especially um, schools that are closer to the city they're landlocked 
And that really, uh, you know, at the time there was, uh, it was all farm fields and, you know, you always remember chasing baseballs back right, there and you're right. trying to, to locate those, but, but it was, um, it was a godsend. And, uh, it was one of those things you also knew it at the time because I've, I've often laughed that, uh, or often said that, uh, you know, running a school in terms of a business, you, you have to run it like a business without anybody knowing you're running it like a business. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that gave us a competitive advantage. And I think that was that was monstrous because now what that allows you to do is we already have a, a, a decent size advantage because as compared to other Catholic schools, we've got a football field, exactly. a stadium. And this now allowed us to have baseball and softball. And, uh, you know, eventually we've put up tennis courts and, and – um, the auxiliary gym is sitting there. So if you come out here in the springtime, especially, I think that's where it really shines. You walk around the campus and it is lit up with kids, with yeah. families, with, yeah. you know, all we're hosting all these events on campus from track and field, baseball games, softball games. And it just, uh, uh, it's huge. And usually there's a grade school who's using the auditorium for their <laughs> spring play. <laughs> right. And and there's no parking. I mean, it's crazy, but it's awesome. It is. It is. And, uh, you know, the, the I guess the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, we, we certainly have all of these facilities, but the usage that we have out of them, you know, that's a Catholic tradition is, you know, you bring something in and you're going to use the heck out of it. And, and we do. Uh, and, uh, but we've also been blessed because um, if our teams aren't using it now, we can reach out to our South Deanery schools and, um, and invite them on campus. Um, and uh, uh, it's a win-win. You get the kids on yeah. campus, you get the parents on campus and they get a feel for Ron Colley high school. And, uh, um, hopefully you know, in the future they become rebels. So, um, huge advantage, those 18 acres. It's, it's just one of those, uh, things that, uh, when I saw it at the time was chomping at the bit, uh, and was very excited about that because it is a competitive advantage when you can have, uh, you know, these kind of facilities, which I would, you know, put us toe to toe with any private school in the state of Indiana in terms of what kind of facilities that we do have um, and that can offer, uh, you know, especially for, you know, we have one of the lowest, uh, there's only one private school with a lower tuition here mm-hmm. in Indianapolis. And uh, so when you can offer this kind of facilities, when you can offer this kind of uh, teaching staff, and when you can uh, do that at a rate that, that uh, um, the value that we have, I think, uh, come shining through. We're going to take a quick break, listen to our sponsor message, and we'll be right back. Rebel 5 is sponsored by Steve's Flowers and Gifts. For the best and freshest flowers in Indianapolis and surrounding areas, Steve's Flowers and Gifts have exactly what you're looking for. For your next special occasion, call Steve's Flowers at 800-742-9359. Welcome back to today's Rebel 5 episode with Dave Gervasio. Dave, you already touched on a little bit about mountain climbing and how important that's been. Um, a few years ago, you got involved into sailing, and I know that's a huge, huge part of your life now. Talk a little bit about that and, and where that goes from here. 
Sure. I'm a lifelong Indiana resident, so um, when I was uh, through school school here, I went uh, on the summer field studies program. First time I went out west. As a student? As a student. Okay. Right, right. Uh, this was the first time I went up into the mountains, and uh, and I was hooked on the outdoors. And so that, uh, and I would say this, I have learned more about life from climbing, from uh, mountaineering, from sailing, uh, you know, than I think in any any other aspect of my life. So uh, that's really what got me hooked on that. After a while of doing things, there's a little voice that goes off in my head that says, hey, let's, let's go try something new. Uh, you idiot. And uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I listened to that voice. And so it was about uh, seven or eight years ago, and, and um, we were on a spring break vacation. We're down in, I think we were down in Key Largo. We get there early, you know, so we can't check into our place yet. So we just, we'll just drive to the beach. Um, so we're out there on the beach, and they have these little Hobie cats. And uh, the little voice is going off in my head. And so we, you know, drag. Uh, a couple of the kids out there, which which were very famous for trying to kill our kids on vacations, <laughs> uh, and so we're out there on this Hobie cat. They give us they give you like a twenty minute lesson. Get out there on this Hobie cat, and I'm hooked. Uh, and so from that point forward, start taking um, sailing lessons. You know, each time we go uh, on vacations, and because uh, as you can imagine, there's not a whole lot of sailing through the cornfields here in Indiana. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I knew from the start. I wanted to take my family out there, four kids, um, and my wife. She would not sail monoholes, which is you know uh, a uh, a vessel that has only one hole because it it tends to uh, sway back and forth mm-hmm. a little bit. So, right from the start, we we I start learning how to sail catamarans, and uh, we're to the point now where we have uh, become the type of family that will jump in a catamaran. We'll sail around uh, and live on the catamaran for a week or two, just visiting different islands, do a lot of snorkeling. We'll do a lot of uh, uh, hiking on different islands. We'll be more than happy to lay on a beach as well. So uh, that's uh, the sort of lifestyle that we've chosen. Uh, Where it goes from here, we've we've actually purchased um, a boat that we're going to keep in the British Virgin Islands. We've Put it in a charter so that when we're not using it, uh, you know, it can make a little bit of money for us. Sure. A little bit of an investment. and uh, But we still have a couple of months out of the year that, that uh, I think we're going to try and get down there on and, and sail around. We love we love the Caribbean. We love uh, the Virgin Islands, the British, the American, Spanish Virgin Islands. So we love sailing around all of those islands. Uh, and now we want to try and take, um, you know, as many people as we can out there and have some fun with that. So... After this, uh, we'll talk the arm roosters into uh, <laughs> heading out uh, on a sailing trip with us. Well, I entirely understand the mountain idea. Um, as as you know, I went on summer field study two or three years ago for the first time. Much past my high school um, experience, it wasn't even a- available back then. And I, the attraction of the mountains is just it's amazing, and I'm hooked. So. I, Darla's sitting next to me, and I, well, you know, maybe the sailing thing is going to take off at, at some point in time, but uh, I'm not quite ready to give up on the mountains just yet. So, Well, I've got a, a hilarious story to tell you of, of uh, <laughs> you know, the, the climbing aspect. Um, 
and it was one of those um, you know situations where uh, you're, you're learning life lessons, uh, and this was this was certainly one of them where um, climbing partner and I we we decided we're going to go out and uh, climb Devil's Tower in Wyoming. It's a uh, it's a pretty high rock climb in terms of I think it's about six or seven pitches, you know, pitches about uh, can be anywhere from you know maybe a hundred feet of climbing. So I think you know, you're putting together six or seven pitches up this rock face, and it's it's pretty well straight up. And once again, you know, I'm a complete idiot. It's, it's like 107 <laughs> degrees out, and we drive out there, and uh, we decide, you know, brain surgeons that we are, we're just going to sleep in the car. And uh, you'll get up the next morning and yeah. climb the thing, right. and we'll drive on back. You know, so at night it's probably you know cooled off to about ninety, <laughs> and you're just sweating to death in the back of this car. We get up early, we go start to climb this. We're about uh, a couple pitches in, and um, so I'm I'm leading the climber. I go up and I put pieces in and tie the rope in as I go up, uh, and get pretty far above the last piece that I've put in, and uh, you know I'm I'm it's it's pretty difficult climbing for me and uh as it turns out you know a piece of rock pops off into my hand and i take a, a fall you know the falls about uh i'm gonna say you know by 15 or 20 feet and uh so it's a pretty good sized fall and my climbing partner tells me this after the climb's over she says uh you know when, when you were falling the only thing i could think was he's got the keys how am i going to get those <laughs> And, and I'm dumb enough to marry this climbing partner a couple of years later. Uh, so, so what's the message there, Dave? <laughs> the message was this. When, after I fell, uh, so I'm dangling on the end of this rope, and I'm sitting there thinking, I can't go down. So the, the what I, ha- I have to climb back up exactly where I just fell. Yeah. And, and, and I'm honestly, I'm terrified, you know, how am I going to do this? And, you know, you're also thinking, well, I told a lot of people I was going to climb this mountain, this rock. I've, I've got to get this done. So, uh, that was, that was really almost a watershed moment for me because you're, you're basically alone on the side of this monstrous yeah. rock. And, you know, you've got a climbing partner who's worried about the car keys. So, uh, <laughs> so, you know, but long story short, it's, it's one foothold at a time. It's one yeah. handhold at a time. And, uh, and it's, you know, you've got to bury the fears and, and you move forward through that. So those are the kind of lessons that through mountaineering, through the sailing, through the rock climbing, those are the kinds of, uh, lessons that have been invaluable to me. When I said earlier that I learned so much more from, from that, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that, that God is truly alive in those situations yeah. and, and that's where I see him the most. So, um, and, and it's taught me the most, um in those situations yeah dave you've uh you've been ahead of the finance department for the 28 years as we've talked about but there's one talent that we haven't talked about and uh, you were our head boys basketball coach for four years um in the I late was. 90s early 2000s and you also uh, coached tennis Talk a little bit about some successes there and, and uh, what was the motivation to get involved in that and maybe the reason why you maybe stepped away. The, mo- the motivation, I would say, uh, you know, earlier in the show, I think I'd really talked about, um, you know, wanting to get a teaching job and a coaching job. I sort of lied on half of that. I really just wanted to coach <laughs> <laughs> when I started uh, because going through school, uh, you know, I had uh, played 
uh, some sports, and I really loved that environment. I loved uh, the coaches that I had, and uh, and I wanted to to be back in that environment, um, and uh, that was really exciting to me. So when I started um, coaching, um, I did really started with basketball, and uh, you know coached at the freshman level and coached JV level and at the varsity level. And um, we, it's always one of those things where you always want more success than you had. But I absolutely, when I look back on it, I loved uh, the interaction with the players. I loved the teams that we had. Uh, and, and, you know, when we came in, it was a lot about learning uh, basketball. It was a lot about bringing in life lessons. It was a lot about uh, uh, letting the game uh, show us a lot about life. And, uh, you know, I also saw myself as, uh, my role as an interpreter um, mm-hmm. to try and um, help kids understand uh, the ups and the downs and, and all of those lessons. Uh, after um, a few years, I, I picked up coaching tennis as well. Uh, two different animals coaching basketball and, and tennis and two different style kids, and uh, but a lot of similarities and, and loved that as well. You know, one being a little bit, a little bit more of a skill sport in terms of of uh, tennis and then uh, basketball, uh, that being one that, that uh, uh, has a little bit uh, rewards athleticism a little bit more. So, so just a, a variety of of coaching um, that that uh, I did. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved uh, working with kids. Um, what chased me out of it? You know, the school kept getting bigger. My family kept getting bigger. Yeah, and uh, that was just you know the natural course. Something yeah. had to give. Uh, and that's what, uh, what did give. And I had, I laughed, um, uh, the year that I, uh, retired from coaching basketball, Steve Witte also retired from Ben Davis. And I said, you know, I made the joke at that time between the two of us, we had over 300 <laughs> wins. Uh, <laughs> that's true. That's true. I think Steve had about 280 of them, but <laughs> We, we've talked about our capital campaigns. We've talked about all of our uh, building projects. Um, we're in the middle of one right now. We're building a new gym, of course. Um, everybody that we've talked to during the episodes of the podcast, we've talked about the, the woodshed. Um, 50 years of history there. So I've asked everybody this. I'm going to ask you this. Do you have a favorite woodshed moment, um, either as a coach or a player or a, a fan? There have been so many moments, but I would have to go all the way back to my uh, playing days, and um, there was there was actually uh, one game where uh, uh, let me back this up. Um, I wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> and I spent a lot of time on the bench, but you know when I was going through school, we had just an incredible. Incredible yeah. senior class, a lot of spirit. Yes, you did. And one of the things that um, they would do would they would actually uh, during the the games uh, would cheer to have me put into the game. <laughs> and uh, so we're we're playing um, in uh, senior night, and we're playing. Uh, I think I can't remember who. I think it may have been Tech. Um, and so it's it's uh, it's a very it's about the last two minutes of the game. 
really critical part uh, because we're up by twenty, <laughs> and you know, fi- and and the and at this time the crowd, you know, at the I had a uh, nickname of uh, Gervo at the time, yes, and so the crowd is is just chanting that name. They have the cheerleaders chanting that name, and 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 uh, God love him, Coach uh, Opal, Doug Opal had to put up with that the whole year long, <laughs> and you know he. he uh, leans down and puts me in because yeah, I don't think I can blow a twenty-point lead at this <laughs> stage of the game. So I go into the game, uh, and I'm and about a you know uh, thirty forty seconds into the game, I get fouled and I go to the free throw <laughs> line, and uh, uh, it's a one and one, and the, the entire crowd just starts going shh shh shh, and the and the entire gym goes dead silent. Well, that could could yes. be the worst oh, thing. Yeah. <laughs> So <laughs> yeah. I end up missing the free throw, and uh, you know the clock keeps going down, and I think there's only like uh, five seconds left, and uh, they fouled us. One of our guys was on the line, uh, and he hits the second free throw, so they're taking the ball inbounds, and there's only like five seconds left. Well, uh, Kevin Kirkhoff steals the inbounds pass, and he throws it over to Mike Kasky, who finds me wide open <laughs> underneath the basket. And so he throws me the ball, and <laughs> this is honest God truth. There's seconds left, and I manage to hit a layup. And the entire stands pours onto the field, <laughs> picks me up on their shoulders, and carries me off, <laughs> off the, off the uh, court and into the uh, back hallway there uh, for probably, uh, you know, hanging on to that 20-point lead. But uh, I did manage to hit that uh, uh, layup, so... Uh, that's pretty much my my uh, basketball career in a nutshell. I know several of the guys in your class uh, pretty well, and I can only just imagine who those people were because I'm sure um, they're still pretty spirited even today. <laughs> um, so that's a great memory. Thanks for sharing that. We're going to take one last break, and we're going to come back, and I'm going to ask Dave the Rebel 5 questions. Rebel 5 is sponsored by Steve's Flowers and Gifts. For the best and freshest flowers in Indianapolis and surrounding areas, Steve's Flowers and Gifts have exactly what you're looking for. For your next special occasion, call Steve's Flowers at 800-742-9359. Welcome back to today's episode of the Rebel 5 podcast with Dave Gervasio. Dave, we're going to run through these Rebel 5 questions. And the first one is, in another life, what would you want to be or do? Um, I tell you, I would love to be a relief pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, regrettably, my fastball is about 68 miles an hour. Uh, so I'll probably have to give up on that dream. I'll tell you, the other thing that I would, would uh, really love doing is to, uh, to sail around the world uh, at some point. Unfortunately, my wife wouldn't go with me so that may have to be uh something that's that just stays a dream maybe you and joe (laughs) i can see that 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 might happen yes uh number two what is the funniest thing that has happened to you recently i tell you we uh have with our family uh and i would encourage everybody to do this we have what we call a family history day where the uh my mom and my dad came over and we ask them to bring five or six pictures, and uh, if they can just tell us the history of their family, and 
and we all sit around the table and they show us the pictures, you know, of their parents and grandparents and however, however, whatever story they want to tell, they can do that. So we did that. And my dad and, you know, he, he, uh, his father came over from Italy and, uh, they grew up in Richmond, Indiana. Mm-hmm. So we said, well, I'll tell you what, let's just jump in the car and we'll head over to Richmond. <laughs> uh, and we'll, we'll look at the, you know, the home that he grew up in and, his dad cool. had a tailor shop yeah, uh, in neat. town, so we get there, and, and in the historic district, the tailor shop is still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you know changed hands or whatever. So we walk up, but the building is still there. Walk up, and there's paper all over the front of the building. So we're trying to lean around and look inside the building, and uh, you know, dad's telling us stories of. Uh, you know, they used to make wine in, in the bottom. They're Italian, so that's what you do. Right. And uh, so we can't get in. So we turn around and start to walk away. And as we're walking away, the door cracks open and a guy sticks his head out. And uh, so we turn back around. We tell him, you know, this is what we're doing. We're, we're coming into uh, we're on a, our family history day here. And my f- uh, grandfather's tailor shop was here. We were just trying to see if we'd come in and take a look around. He says, well, sure, come on in. So throws the door open and we're about eight steps in the door and I'm looking around and I'm seeing a bunch of tables with cards on them. I'm realizing this is an illegal gambling place. (laughs) (laughs) We've got all four of our kids walking through an illegal gambling place. And so, you know, so we've, we've got the blinders on the kids and we're trying to get through, but dad's going off on every story under the sun. (laughs) And, uh, it was, it was just, uh, a microcosm of our life as Gervasios, <laughs> but uh, uh, it was funny for us. That's a that's a neat idea, family uh, history day. And mm-hmm. That's uh, I'm sure that uh, maybe some of our listeners might take you up on, uh, on on doing that with their own families. Highly encourage it. Number three, a favorite time or place when you have run into a Ron Colley person. Uh, Buddy and I were. Uh, headed out uh, to go see the IU Purdue bucket game up in West Lafayette. And so we're uh, really just going up uh, 65, get off the interstate. And about 100 yards away, we see there's just this short, pudgy guy with his thumb out. Uh, and he's you know, hitchhiking for, for a ride. Uh, how, how long ago was this? This was, we were probably uh, just a few years out of college. Okay. So it's, it's been a while ago. And uh, you know, as we keep getting closer and closer, this guy looks pretty familiar. And uh, we get about 50 yards away, and it's John Wirtz. (laughs) (laughs) And if if you've ever played, you know, uh, played baseball for John, you're thinking one of two things right here. I'm either going to pull over and give him a ride, or I'm going to hit him. (laughs) Or basketball. I (laughs) play basketball. basketball. There you go. I'm just kidding. I love John. He is great. Uh, So we did pull him over, pull over, and – Gave him a ride to the game. And That's hilarious. Exact, yeah. Uh, so out of the blue, and, and he and you know vintage John, he had just said he was he was with a buddy, and, and they were on their way. I think up to Chicago, and he said, "Yeah, I'd rather see the IU Purdue game. Just drop me off here." So that's what he did. He was walking, and <laughs> he was going to buy a ticket. And he did. So yeah. <laughs> uh, number four. What do you wish you could tell your younger self? Oh, I, I tell you, there's uh, and, and Chuck says it. Chuck Weisenbach says this a lot of um, of make it a great day. Yep. And you know it's a common phrase that we hear around here. Well, that phrase actually comes from a book uh, that we read a long time ago, back when we were coaching. Uh, Chuck was the uh, you know head varsity basketball coach at the time. I think I was coaching freshmen. And the name of the book is "Make the Big Time Where You Are." Hmm. 
And uh, that that quote has always stuck with me. Um, and so it's almost, uh, you know, no matter what I was doing, uh, no matter how many people we had doing it, prime example is when I was coaching here. Uh, I was coaching basketball. I was coaching tennis at the same time. Well, you know, basketball, that's a, a sport that's going to get a lot of, of following. It's going to get a lot of peer recognition for the kids that are on that team. But I'm also coaching tennis, and, you know, the parents are going to come out and watch tennis. Right. And, uh, you know, those kids are lucky to get any kind of peer recognition. So, you know, that's the kind of situation where you can go in and you need to make the big time right there for those kids, with those kids. you got to be living it. Uh, and that was one of the, you know, key moments in my life as well where I realized, you know what, that, that big time is something that, that you make. It's not something – you know, it's nice to to have the crowds or the following or whatever it might be. Um, but so you know, now whether it is uh, a hike or a climb or a sail, or whether it is just a one-on-one conversation with somebody, or uh, whatever the situation is, for me, it's a big time. Yeah, nice. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, number five, any life advice you'd like to throw out there? You've already um, touched on a few things. You know, I tell you, the uh, we're we're uh, we're moving um, right <clears throat> with our uh, youngest child now graduating. Um, all four of our kids will be out of the house. It's it's just Tamara and I. And I was walking through our house, uh, and I and just thinking of you know some of the memories that were there. And as I walked uh, into, uh, you know, our kitchen, I looked at, uh, you know, the six feet of wood that, that we call our family dining table. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if I were to, to give out life advice, um, don't miss that with your kids. Yeah. And uh, that I, I just sat back and, and remembered all the laughter, you know, the love, the tears, the the conversations that you have and still have, you know, when our kids come back from college and come back from their jobs. And, and uh, we always made it a priority that, uh, you know, several times a week we were going to have dinner yep. a- as a family. And, uh, you know, when our kids all come back now, um, pick up right where they left off. Yeah. And they are, you know, uh, ripping on one another. And, and you're, you just go back to the laughter and love. And it just seems to come right back. So, uh, if I could give advice, that would be it. And how long have you lived there? Uh, 22 years. Cool thing is that house stays in the Roncalli family. You know what? And that entire neighborhood, uh, we we underestimated when we when we bought the house, uh, how impactful that would be just because it's sort of a throwback to where the kids are walking to school. Yep. And, uh, you know, there is such that uh, uh, neighborhood feel to it. Um, and, uh, I know we underestimated that when we bought it and, uh, I hope Trevor and Amy get as much pleasure out of it as we did. I'm sure they will. Last thing, Dave, thanks for being here today. We really appreciate your insight and some of the history of Ron Colley high school as we celebrate our 50 year celebration this year. I will leave the floor open for you for, uh, any last thoughts. Uh, well, I, I can't thank you enough for, for doing this program. Um, you know, listening already to to a Bob Tully and to a Kevin Bonich and and uh, uh, all the people that, that you have had on, um, I, I tell you, it really comes full circle for me because one of the things that that I really like to do with my life, um, 
you know, as I mentioned, that little voice goes off in my head. And so I want to go out and I want to try new things. Um, and if I taste some success with those things, well, then I want to try and pass that on to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, I, and it's a constant uh, process there of finding something new, trying to get good at it, and pass it on to somebody else. And hearing uh, these podcasts really just brings that into light. Hearing of Bob Tolley, knowing uh, the many lives that he has touched, um, the things that he's gotten so well at, and is passing those on. Uh, you know, in my, you know, I'm now here in year 28. I hope I've figured something out right. by now and, and, uh, and hope to pass that on. Um, and so that, uh, that continuous renewal process, uh, is something that I love. Uh, and thanks for putting the podcasts together just to help crystallize that. Uh, and I think it really even comes back to, to Ron Colley's mission statement. You look in there and, and, Ron Colley is trying to build lifelong learners, yeah. and uh, I've I've carried that with me when I graduated. Live my try to live my life that way, you know. For me, for the blessings it's given me, can't uh, you know? I, I can't uh, thank people enough um, for that whole whole process. Well, again, thank you for being here today. I touched on it at the very beginning, but I look at you as one of the unsung heroes of Ron Colley's history. Without your guidance, we probably wouldn't have some of the things that we have today. And so um, part of the podcast idea is to let people know some of those hidden gems and your hidden gem. And I just want to thank you so much for being here and being part of the podcast. Thanks, Dave. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Again, you gave me way too much credit, but thanks. I'm Gary Armbruster, and thanks for joining us today for this episode of the Rebel 5 Podcast. To find out more information about the podcast, please visit 50.roncolly.org forward slash podcast.php. Again, thanks so much for joining us today, and until next time, we'll fight ahead.